Peter Pan, Chapter 1 Peter Breaks Through All children except one grow up. They soon know that they will grow up. And the way Wendy knew this is that one day, when she was two years old, she was playing in the garden, and she plucked another flower and ran with it to her mother. I suppose she must have looked rather delightful, for Mrs. Darling had put her hand to her heart and cried. Oh, why can't you remain like this forever? This was all that passed between them on the subject, but henceforth, Wendy knew that she must grow up. You always know that after you are two. Two is the beginning of the end. Of course they lived at fourteen, and until Wendy came, her mother was the chief one. She was a lovely lady, with a romantic mind and such a sweet mocking mouth. Her romantic mind was like the tiny boxes, one within the other, that come from the puzzling east. However many you discover, there's always one more. And her sweet mocking mouth had one kiss on it that Wendy could never get, though there it was, perfectly conspicuous in the right-hand corner. The way Mrs. Darling won her was this. The many gentlemen who had been boys when she was a girl discovered simultaneously that they loved her, and they all ran to her house and proposed, except Mr. Darling, who took a cab and nipped in first. So he got her. He got all of her, except her innermost box and the kiss. He never knew about the box, and in time he gave up trying for the kiss. Wendy thought Napoleon could have got it, but I can picture him trying, and then going off in passion, slamming the door. Mr. Darling used to boast to Wendy that her mother not only loved him, but respected him. He was one of those deep ones who knew about the stocks and shares. Of course, no one really knows, but he quite seemed to know and he often said stocks were up and shares were down, in a way that would have made any woman respect him. Mrs. Darling was married in white, and at first she kept the books perfectly, almost gleefully, as if it were a game. Not so much as a Brussels sprout was missing, and by and by whole cauliflowers dropped out, and instead of them there were pictures of babies without faces. She drew them when she knew she should have been tidying up. There were Mrs. Darling's guesses. Wendy came first, then John than Michael. For a week or two after Wendy came, it was doubtful whether they would be able to keep her, as she was another mouth to feed. Mr. Darling was frightfully proud of her, but he was very honorable. He sat on the edge of Mrs. Darling's bed, holding her hand and calculating expenses, while she looked at him imploringly. She wanted to risk it, come what might, but that was not his way. His way was with pencil and a piece of paper, and if she confused him with suggestions— he had to begin at the beginning again. Now don't interrupt, he would beg of her. I have one pound seventeen here, and two and six at the office. I can cut off my coffee in the office, say ten shillings, making two, nine, and six, with your eighteen and three, makes three, nine, seven, with five not, not in my checkbook, makes eight, nine, seven. Who is that moving? Eight, nine, seven, dot, and carry the seven... Don't speak, my own, and pound you lent to the man who came to the door. Quiet, child. Dot and carry the child. There, you've done it. Did I say 997? Yes, I said 997. The question is, can we try it for a year on 997? Of course we can, George, she cried. But she was prejudiced in Wendy's favor, and he was really the grander character of the two. Remember Mumps? He warned her almost threateningly, and off he went again. Mumps. One pound. That is what I have put down. But I dare say it will be more like thirty shillings. Don't speak, 
Measles, one five. German measles, half a guinea makes two, fifteen, six. Don't wiggle your finger. Whooping cough, say fifteen shillings. And so on it went. And it added up differently each time. But at last, Wendy just got through with the mumps, reduced to twelve, six, and two kinds of measles treated as one. There was the same excitement over John, and Michael had even narrower squeak, but both were kept, and soon might have seen the three of them going in a row to Mrs. Falsom's kindergarten school, accompanied by their nurse. Mrs. Darling loved to have everything just so, and Mr. Darling had a passion for being exactly like his neighbors, so of course they had a nurse. As they were poor, owing to the amount of the milk that children drank, the nurse was a prim Newfoundland dog called Nana who belonged to no one in particular until the Darlings engaged her. She had always thought the children important, however, and the Darlings had become acquainted with her in Kensington Gardens, where she spent most of her spare time peeping into perambulators, and was much hated by careless nursemaids, whom she followed to their homes, and accompanied off to their mistresses. She proved to be quite a treasure of a nurse. How thorough she was at bath time, and up to any moment of the night, if one of her charges made the slightest cry. Of course, her kennel was in the nursery. She had a genius for knowing when a cough was a thing to have no patience with, and when it needs stocking around your throat. She believed it to her last day in old-fashioned remedies like rhubarb leaf, and made sounds of contempt over this newfangled talk about germs and so on. It was a lesson in propriety to see her escorting the children to school, walking sedately by their side when they were well-behaved, and butting them back into line if they strayed. On John's footer days she never once forgot his sweater, and she usually carried an umbrella in her mouth in case of rain. There's a room in the basement of Mrs. Falsom's school where the nurses wait. They sat on forms while Nana lay on the floor, but that was the only difference. They affected to ignore her as an inferior social status to themselves, and she despised their light talk. She resonated visits to the nursery from Mrs. Darling's friends, but if they did come she first whipped off Michael's pinafore and put him into the one with the blue braiding, and smoothed it out. Wendy made a dash at John's hair. No nursery could possibly have been conducted more correctly, and Mr. Darling knew it, and yet sometimes he wondered uneasily what the neighbors talked about. He had his position in the city to consider. Nana also troubled him in another way. He sometimes had a feeling that she did not admire him. I know she admires you tremendously, George, Mrs. Darling would assure him and then she would sign to the children to be specifically nice to father. Lovely dances followed, into which the only other servant, Liza, was sometimes allowed to join. Such a midget she looked with her long skirt and maid's cap, though she had sworn, when engaged, that she would never see ten again. The gaiety of those romps, the gayest of all, was Mrs. Darling, who would pirouette so wildly that all you could see of her was the kiss, and then, if you had dashed at her, you might have gotten it. There was never a simpler, happier family until the coming of Peter Pan. Mrs. Darling first heard of Peter when she was tidying up her children's minds. It is the nightly custom of every good mother, after her children are asleep, to rummage in their minds and put things straight for the next morning, repacking into proper places the many articles that have wandered during the day. If you could keep awake, but of course you can't, you would see your own mother doing this, and you would find it very interesting to watch her. It's quite like tidying up drawers. You would see her on her knees, I expect, lingering humorously over some of the contents, wondering where on earth you had picked this thing up, making discoveries sweet and not so sweet, 
pressing this to her cheek as if it were nice as a kitten, and hurriedly stowing that out of sight. When you wake in the morning, the naughtiness and evil passions for which you went to bed with have been folded up small and placed at the bottom of your mind, and on the top, beautifully aired and spread to your prettier thoughts, ready for you to put on. And I don't know whether you have ever seen a map of a person's mind. Doctors sometimes draw maps of other parts of you, and your own map can become intensely interesting. But catch them trying to draw a map of a child's mind, which is not only confused, but keeps going round all the time. There are zigzag lines on it, just like your temperature on a card. And those are probably roads in an island, for Neverland is always more or less an island, with astonishing splashes of color here and there. Coral reefs and rakish-looking craft in the offing, and the savages in lonely lairs, and gnomes who are mostly tailors, and caves through which a river runs, and a princes with six elder brothers, and a hut fast going into decay, and one very small old lady with a hooked nose. It would be an easy map if that were all, but that's only the first day of school, religion, fathers, the round pond, needlework, murders, hangings, chocolate pudding, getting into braces, say ninety-nine, three-pence for pulling out your tooth yourself, and so on, and either they are part of the island, or they are another map showing it through. It's all rather confusing, especially as nothing will stand still. Of course, the Neverlands vary a good deal. John's, for instance, had a lagoon with flamingos flying over it, at which John was shooting, while Michael, who had a very small flamingo with lagoons flying over it. John lived in a boat turned upside down on the sands. Michael had a wigwam. Wendy and a house full of leaves sewn together. John had no friends. Michael had friends at night. Wendy had a pet wolf, forsaken by its parents. But on the whole, Neverlands have a family resemblance, and if they stood still in a row, you could say of them that they have each each other's nose, and so forth. On these magic shores, children at play are forever beaching their corals. We too have been there. We still hear the sound of the surf, and though we shall land no more. Of the delectable islands, the Neverland is the suggest and most compact, not large and sprawly, you know, with tedious distance between one adventure and the other, but nicely crammed. When you play at it by day with the chairs and tablecloth, it's not the least alarming, but two minutes before you go to sleep, it becomes nearly real. That's why there are nightlights. Occasionally in her travels, though, her children's minds, Mrs. Darling found things that she could not understand. Of those things, the quite most perplexing was the word Peter. She knew of no Peter, and yet here he was, in there and with John and Michael's minds, while Wendy's began to be scrawled all over with him. The name stood out in bolder letters than any of the other words, and as Mrs. Darling gazed, she felt that it had an oddly cocky appearance. Yes, he is rather cocky, Wendy admitted with regret. Her mother had been questioning her. But who is he, my pet? He is Peter Pan. You know, mother. At first Mrs. Darling did not know, but after thinking back to her childhood, she just remembered a Peter Pan, who said he was to live with the fairies. There were odd stories about him, as that when children died, he went part of the way with them, so they should not be frightened. She had believed in him at the time, but now she was married, and full of sense, and she quite doubted whether there was any such person. Besides, she said to Wendy, he would be grown up by this time. Oh, no, he isn't grown up, 
Wendy assured her confidently. And he is just my size. She meant that he was her size both in mind and body. She didn't know how she knew it, but she just knew. Mrs. Darling consulted Mr. Darling, but he smiled poo-poo. Mark my words, he said. This is some nonsense Nana's been putting into their heads. Just the sort of idea a dog would have. Leave it alone and it will blow over. But it would not blow over. And soon the troublesome boy gave Mrs. Darling quite a shock. Children have the strangest adventures without being troubled by them. For instance, they may remember to mention a week after the event happened that when they were in the wood, they met their dead father and had a game with him. It was in this casual way that Wendy one morning made a disquieting revelation. Some leaves of a tree had been found on the nursery floor, which certainly were not there when the children went to bed, and Mrs. Darling was puzzling over them when Wendy said with a tolerant smile, I do believe that is Peter again. Whatever do you mean, Wendy? It's so naughty of him not to wipe, she said, sighing. She was a tidy child. Then she explained in a quite matter-of-fact way that she thought Peter sometimes came into the nursery at night and sat at the foot of her bed and played his pipes to her. Unfortunately, she never woke, so she didn't know how she knew. She just knew. What nonsense you talk, precious. No one can get into the house without knocking. I think he comes by the window, she said. My love, it's three floors up. Weren't the leaves at the foot of the window, mother? It was quite true. The leaves had been found very near the window. Mrs. Darling did not know what to think, for it all seemed so natural that Wendy could not dismiss by saying she had been dreaming. My child, the mother cried, why did you not tell me of this before? I forgot, said Wendy lightly. She was in a hurry to get her breakfast. Oh, surely she must have been dreaming. But on the other hand, there were the leaves. Mrs. Darling examined them carefully. They were skeleton leaves but she's sure they did not come from any tree that grew in England. She crawled about the floor, peering at it with a candle for marks of a strange foot. She rattled the poker up the chimney, tapped the walls. She let down a tape from the window to the pavement, and it was sheer drop of thirty feet, without so much as a spout to climb by. Certainly Wendy had been dreaming, but Wendy had not been dreaming, and the very next night showed— the night on which the extraordinary adventures of these children may be said to have begun. On the night we speak of, all the children were once more in bed. It happened to be Nana's evening off, and Mrs. Darling had bathed them and sung to them until one by one they had let go of her hand and slid away into the land of sleep. They were all looking so safe and cozy that she smiled at her fears now and sat down tranquilly by the fire to sew. It was something for Michael, who on his birthday was getting into shirts. The fire was warm, however, and the nursery dimly lit by three nightlights, and presently the sewing lay on Mrs. Darling's lap. Her head then nodded, oh so gracefully. She was asleep. Look at the four of them, Wendy and Michael over there, John here and Mrs. Darling by the fire. There should have been a fourth nightlight. While she slept she had a dream— she dreamt that Neverland had come too near, and a strange boy had broken through from it. He did not alarm her, for she thought she had seen him before in the faces of many women who have no children. Perhaps he is to be found in the faces of some mothers also, but in her dream he had rent the film that obscures the Neverland, and she saw Wendy and John and Michael peeping through the gap. The dream by itself would have been a trifle, but while she was dreaming, 
the window of the nursery blew open, and a boy did drop on the floor. He was accompanied by a strange light no bigger than your fist, which darted about the room like a living thing. I think it must have been this light that wakened Mrs. Darling. She started up with a cry and saw the boy, and somehow she knew at once he was Peter Pan. If you or I or Wendy had been there, we should have seen that he was very like Mrs. Darling's kiss. He was a lovely boy, clad in skeleton leaves and the juices that ooze out of trees. But the most entrancing thing about him was that he had all his first teeth. When he saw she was a grown-up, he gnashed the little pearls at her.